listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We are finishing up our series in the Beatitudes, these eight profound statements we find at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're on number eight this weekend. Next weekend, uh, John Sponsler is going to be sharing the word. I'm excited about John preaching. I'm, a, I'm even more excited about getting a break from preaching. And um, just to let you know what's coming up around the corner, the following weekend, uh, we're going to begin an Advent series. And so I'm just going to preach four sermons during Advent season uh, that are just, it's not part of any particular series. It's just to help us, you know, uh, get the most out of Advent that we can. And then coming out of Christmas, you know, Pastor Wade will be preaching on the 26th of December. And then starting in January, we'll pick up right where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. So after tonight, after this weekend, we'll have a little bit of a break from the Sermon on the Mount, but we'll get right back into it in January. But tonight we are finishing up our Beatitude study with Beatitude number eight. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter five, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pause and pray and we're going to jump into it. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge that you are here where you're in the room, you're at work in this place, whether we perceive it or not, and we want to cooperate with what you're doing. What else is life about? What else really gets accomplished if we're not working with you? What else is worth anything if we're not partnering with what you're doing in the world? Help us to properly perceive that so that we can give our entire selves to your mission. And the Beatitudes perfectly encapsulate that mission. May we properly understand them. And may these Beatitudes go to work in our lives, especially in this moment as we study the eighth Beatitude. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would just speak to the very core of our beings. Illuminate us. Illuminate our understanding. And help form us into Jesus' people. In your name, amen. So we talk, we've been talking about the Beatitudes. By now, you understand where, where, I, where I stand on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not eight interesting, cool, inspiring statements. They are collectively presenting us the vision of what Jesus is doing. They, they are announcing the kingdom of God has come, and these are the kinds of people who are going to find its arrival to be good news. And, and, and one of the things about the Beatitudes, I think a lot of you are noticing. I've heard people talk about this. It's how connected they are. They are very much linked with one another. These eight statements are not independent of one another. They interact with one another. They really do. They're enmeshed with one another. So take, for example, our beatitude from last weekend. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. If you'll give me two minutes to just give you a quick recap. We talked last week about how we live in a fractured, divided world where the entire world is defined by an us versus them hostility. 
And there's all kinds of versions of it. But what we typically do, and it's our human nature, is we amass in groups of people. We find people who are like us, who think like us, who, who agree with us, who have a shared perspective or shared way of looking at the world or just some type of commonality and we just naturally gravitate to one another and we form an us group. And nothing unites and galvanizes and energizes an us group quicker than a common hatred against a common enemy. And, and it's the way the world's been running since the very beginning. And it's killing us, literally. But when the word of God made flesh arrives on this earth, he refuses to play that game. And we saw it last week from his very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. We talked about how Nazareth was up in the northern part of Israel, just a few miles from the Syrian border, their hated enemies. It's where the Golan Heights are today. You know, you've heard about the Golan Heights. It's always in the news. To this day, it is one of the most volatile regions on earth, very much defined by this us versus them mentality. And it's been that way for millennia. And in Jesus's day, for the Galilean Jews living in Nazareth, there was nobody they hated more than the Syrian Gentiles and vice versa. It was an intense hatred that went back centuries. And so Jesus shows up in Nazareth to preach his first sermon. You know, it's hard enough to preach your first sermon, especially when you start doing what Jesus does in his, in his first sermon. Because they like the first part. Everything goes well the first part. But then things take a strange turn. And Jesus begins to challenge this cherished hostility that they kept in their hearts towards the Syrians. And he begins to suggest that, you know what, maybe God isn't on our side against our enemies. He says, you know what, I'm sure there were a lot of lepers living in Israel during the days of Elisha, and yet God didn't send Elisha to heal any of them. Instead, he sent him to heal only Naaman the Syrian. And he says, I bet there were a lot of starving, hungry Israelite widows during that horrific famine that was taking place in Elijah's day and age. And yet God didn't send Elijah to do a miracle for any of them, only this Syrian woman in Zarephath. And so here we have Jesus, the peacemaker, stepping in between warring parties to hopefully dislodge them from this us versus them mentality that's so destructive. And what do they want to do in response? Throw them off a cliff. So it flows right into our beatitude for this week. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Or we could say it this way. Blessed are those who suffer for the right reasons. Jesus is being persecuted in his hometown because he has the audacity to suggest that maybe God is on the side of those Gentiles too. He wants to heal them too. He wants to bless them too. He wants to help them too. He's for them too. And so following Jesus and living the Beatitudes leads us into the divine life. It leads us into life and human society the way God has designed it to function. But they also lead us to persecution. One more Greek word I want to give you out of the Beatitudes. The, the Greek word for persecuted here is the Greek word dioko. Everybody say dioko. 
Dioko carries with it the idea of a chase. To, you could say to pursue with malevolent intent, to harass, to trouble. This is exactly what the Pharisees did all the time to Jesus. On every page of the Gospels, virtually, it just seems like no matter where Jesus is, no matter what he's doing, the Pharisees are right around the corner hiding in the bushes somewhere. And they're listening to every word that he says, not because they're students of his, not because they want to learn, it's not because they're hungry, it's because they're listening for something they can use to trip him up. They want to find some misstep in his words that they can use to misrepresent him, mischaracterize him, so that they can derail what God is doing in Jesus. So they were constantly in pursuit of Jesus, harassing him, persecuting him. That's what this word means. Now, sometimes, of course, persecution can reach violent proportions, as it did for Jesus and many of the apostles, much of the early church, and it continues to do so for many Christians in certain parts of the world today. You have brothers and sisters in Christ right now who are living under the threat of death because of their Christian faith in various parts of the world. It's a very real situation. And I just, I think sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of that. But the eighth beatitude is not restricted to only that kind of persecution that results in violence. When you walk the Jesus way and very seriously and very authentically set out to truly follow Jesus in the way of the beatitudes, in the way of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I'm going to tell you with, without any doubt in my mind there are going to be times well-meaning people, sometimes even religious people, will misunderstand you, sometimes willfully misrepresent you, mischaracterize you, and sometimes even malign your character. All of this, we see it in Jesus' extended commentary here on this eighth beatitude. When you look at verse 11 and 12, this is the only beatitude he gives extended commentary on. Look at what he says. Blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Watch this. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what is a prophet? Here's where I want to correct a misunderstanding. To be a prophetic person is not about being a prognosticator of the future. To be a prophetic person is to bring prophetic critique to the present, primarily. That's what the Hebrew prophets were. They were people who had the courage to speak out and identify the idolatry, the immorality, and the injustices that were happening in their day. And it's because of that that they were persecuted and often killed. Because that's the point. People don't persecute people for predicting earthquakes. They persecute people for challenging the status quo, like what Jesus does in his first sermon in Nazareth. He begins to challenge the prevailing assumptions and the cherished hostilities that these people were harboring. He brings it to the forefront and challenges it. And, and folks, when you do something like that, I promise you, 
you're going to have some measure of opposition. Now, if you don't want to experience that, then just avoid it. Stay away from that. There are plenty of other things you can talk about and preach on and teach on that are much less controversial that people are going to be okay with, but you're also not going to make much of a difference in the world. But if you're going to follow the countercultural, counterintuitive, revolutionary message of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets before them, people who were killed in various ways, just know people are not going to take kindly to that. There's a price to pay for following Jesus. There's a price to pay to adhering faithfully to the message of Jesus. I didn't get a single, I thought I'd get at least one amen there. But sometimes the best response is to sit and think. Stroke your chin. Back up to verse 12. The the very first word of verse 12, I think it's interesting. Very first word of verse 12 is what? Rejoice. I want to point out to you, this is the very first command in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a command. Remember, the Beatitudes are not commands. The Beatitudes are just simply announcements. Jesus is announcing these are the kinds of people who are going to experience the kingdom of God and they're going to find it to be good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are mourning, they're they're going to be comforted. The meek, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. So he's just announcing some things. But in verse 12, we find the very first imperative, the very first command. And what is the command? Rejoice. And he gives a reason for it. He's not saying rejoice because people are mistreating you and maligning your character. That's not fun. He's saying rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now, if I'm persecuted, I'm sure when I experience heaven that there's going to be an eternal reward. I'm positive of that. But, but what's being communicated here is that the, res, the, the reward is reserved for me in heaven and comes forth from heaven, even now. So, so let me say it this way. If I come home one day and Carrie happens to be there and says, Ryan, I just cooked some chicken andouille sausage gumbo. Amen. I haven't had dinner yet, but she says, I've cooked some gumbo and I've saved some gumbo for you in the refrigerator. I have a reward for you in the refrigerator. I don't have to get into the refrigerator to taste the gumbo. You understand? The gumbo is reserved for me in the refrigerator and comes forth from the refrigerator so that even now I can experience some some hot, spicy chicken and dewy sausage gumbo. I feel the Holy Spirit in this place right now. So what Jesus is saying is there are rewards that will come forth from heaven, even here and now, for those of you who are misrepresented, misunderstood, maligned, and persecuted because you have been true to the Jesus way. The Beatitudes lead us into life in the kingdom of God. I think you can see that by now. I hope you can see that. But the Beatitudes also lead us into the way of the cross. Because the moment Jesus announces the Beatitudes, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and and then begins to live it out in a very public manner, 
it's going to take him down a path that will inevitably lead him to the cross. In fact, the Beatitudes themselves are found at Calvary. I'm going to show you what I mean. I want to show you a painting, and I want to leave this painting on the screen until the very end of the sermon. We're just going to look at this painting for the rest of the sermon. I want you to look at this painting. Hopefully you can see it. This painting was painting, it was painted by um, an Italian painter named Andrea Montagna. It took him three years. It was finished in the year 1459. In fact, next time you go to the Getty Center, he's got a couple of his paintings in the Getty Center. I, just, I noticed a, a month ago, I, a couple of his paintings there. This one here hangs in the Louvre in Paris. But I want you to just look at this painting. I want you to study it. I want you to reflect upon it. I'm going to bring it all out in a moment. But just look at this painting and uh, listen to me as you reflect on it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's just reflect on each one for a moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where do we see in this painting the poor in spirit receiving the kingdom of heaven? Well, how about that thief at Jesus' right hand who earlier was joining in the taunts of those who were mocking Jesus, but eventually he thinks better of it and he repents. And he begins to scold his compatriot who's hanging on the opposite side of Jesus. And he says, you know what? We're here because we belong here. We're guilty. But he's done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, it's not the Pharisees with their pride and their deep spirituality and their adherence to the Torah and, and their pride and, their, and the regularity of their fasting and their tithing and their attendance of worship in the temple. It's not the Pharisees who are promised the paradise of the kingdom of God, but it's this poor in spirit criminal dying at the right hand of Christ. And Jesus says, you will be with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Look at those women. Such a portrait of sorrow, profound grief, hopes extinguished. 
And it's these women who remain at the foot of the cross the entire time when almost every one of the disciples had fled and abandoned Jesus. The women stayed. In fact, these women had made the long journey from up north in Galilee to Jerusalem because they were hoping to see Jesus crowned king. And even though they can't see it, the reality is that in this moment, he is being crowned king. But they can't see it yet. All they see is death. All they see is injustice. All they see is a a terrible murder. And they're mourning. But these women will be the very first to rejoice. They will be the first to receive comfort. They'll be the first to receive the good news of Easter Sunday. Once again, our gospel is not Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Death, burial, resurrection. And grief and sorrow are work to be tended to, not to be avoided, because it's the hard work of grief and pain and sorrow that carves the necessary space in our soul so that we can be prepared to receive the comfort of Easter Sunday when Jesus says to us, rejoice, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Who is the meek one in our painting? Well, it's Jesus, who just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday rides into Jerusalem as his triumphal entry and fulfills the words of the prophet Zechariah. He rides in meek and mounted on a donkey. Not a war horse like Alexander or Caesar Augustus or Pontius Pilate. He rides on the back of a foal of a donkey, a baby donkey, basically making a mockery of Caesar and his conception of power and what it looks like. But if you keep reading the whole passage down to the 10th verse, it says, and his reign will be extended from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. Jesus doesn't win his kingdom with a sword in his hand. He refuses to take up the sword and revolt against the Romans like everybody wanted him to do. Instead, he is meek. He doesn't fight back. He absorbs the hatred and the vitriol so that after resurrection, he's able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And Psalm 2 written a thousand years earlier, is fulfilled. Because the Son of God drank the cup that his Father gave him to drink and said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now the Father says, and I, I will now give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus, on the cross, inherits the earth through his meekness at Calvary. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right, 
for they will be satisfied. It's from the cross. Jesus cries out, I thirst. What's happening here? Through the cross, God the Father is setting things right. He's refounding the world on a whole new axis. He's justifying, making things right so that whosoever believeth upon him. And what is Jesus' motivation to go to the cross? Because he hungers and thirsts and craves for things to be made right, for righteousness, in other words. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Where do we see mercy in this painting? I don't, I don't see much mercy, to be honest. But I see it in a couple places. I think it's the criminal on Jesus' right-hand side. I think that's what Montagna thinks, because he's cast him in the light, whereas the other guy is in a shadow. But it's this thief on the cross who showed the tiniest bit of mercy. When he looks at this other criminal on the opposite side and everyone down below, and, and he, he stands up to their mockery and their taunting, and he says, you know what, we're up here because we deserve to be here, but this guy in the middle has done nothing wrong. We're guilty, he's innocent. And it's him who is blessed with the mercy of today, you will be with me in paradise. But of course, the greatest demonstration of mercy is from the one in the middle, who when they nail him to the cross, what comes out of him is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No plea for wrath, no cry for vengeance, no, no calling down of 12 legions of angels to come and bring fiery judgment. Just a merciful plea for forgiveness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Look at that Roman centurion on the far right-hand side. Here's a man who was in charge of the crucifixion. He was overseeing it. Just as he's overseen probably hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. This is a, a man who sees blood virtually every day of his life. He's very jaded. His perception of the world is warped. Every day he sees the worst violence imaginable. His mind has been scarred by it. There's not a religious bone in his body. He knows nothing about the Hebrew God, the Israelite scriptures. He, he's so far removed from that. And yet there was something about Jesus and the way he died. Maybe it was when Jesus cried out for forgiveness for his enemies. Maybe it was that moment. But there was something about Jesus that when he looked up at him, he said, surely this was the son of God. The Pharisees, in all of their knowledge and all of their learning and all of their biblical wisdom, they could not see it. They could not see God in Christ. They saw the devil. They saw a troublemaker that needed to be put to death. Why? Because they were blinded by their religious pride, hypocrisy, and judgmentalism. But this Roman centurion, somehow or another, I'm sure his life was filled with sin. But he didn't, he didn't have the particular sins of religious pride and arrogance and hypocrisy and judgmentalism. And there was enough purity of heart in this Roman centurion to be able to look up at Jesus, this man on the cross. And when everybody else deserted him, he looks up and says, surely this was the son of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Truly, this is the son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called the sons of God. Well, now it's all coming together, isn't it? What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's reconciling all things in heaven on earth by the blood of his cross, as Paul would later write. He's taking every person, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, and he's beginning to form us into one new humanity by the blood of his cross. He's making peace, and he's persecuted for it, and somebody literally stands there and calls him the Son of God. And then finally, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, that's where we find Jesus, persecuted, reviled, rejected. But the stone that the chief builders rejected would become the cornerstone of the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven does not break forth among men apart from persecution. And it's at the cross that God begins to renew the world. And all that renewal that shall ultimately be fulfilled one day, it begins and flows forth from what God was doing in Christ at Calvary. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.